This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Market, current business radio, powered by the Bourne School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Bourne Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. Professor, generally a we start to September here. We've had some tech rotation. How are you looking at the markets this week? Wow, there's, there's so much going on, Jeremy. Uh, first of all, let me say it was absolutely great to see a uh, the the NFL game uh, and p- particularly fans. It's the first time I think in since the pandemic that a uh, sporting event was held with real fans. Uh, it was limited, of course, but uh, l- let's hope this is a uh, precursor for what's uh, going to happen. And, 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 and clearly what's going to happen on the virus, as I've been saying, uh, will determine the economy and will determine, uh, determine the elections. Um, trends in the U.S. are pretty good right now. I mean, we definitely, we've been mentioning uh, definitely down in those uh, four southern states, um, I'm thinking Southern California, particularly, as being the hot spot. Um, so the the cases are down, uh, the deaths are down. Um, uh, this is uh, this is very good trends. Now, what everyone is waiting for is as schools have reopened, um, in many cases, uh, as restaurants, as uh, limited reopening, but but reopening indoor activities. Uh, will there be another spike? Um, and I think that that's going to be very important because we'll know by the end of October or November, by that uh, time, whether there will be another spike or, or not, or whether uh, the, the careful reopening and distancing will not. Um, and I think that that will be an, uh, an important uh, factor. Um, uh, again, a flare-up of the virus is not good for the Republicans of the Trump administration. A tamping down of the virus uh, would be uh, interpreted as being more favorable for those that want a reopening. Um, so, you know, that certainly uh, is, is something uh, to watch. Uh, stalemate in, in, in Washington, it looks like both sides have decided politically they gain the Democrats gain by no by having no uh, compromise and making the economy just as worse off as possible, um, and the Republicans refuse to give in to billion trillions of dollars um, just to get the economy moving again. So, it looks like there will be nothing. It would be really unfortunate because, uh, again, uh, about a trillion dollars of the was totally agreed upon by the Republicans and Democrats. But now it looks like for the next two months that won't happen. Um, we are getting a flattening on the economic front. We are getting a flattening out of uh, money supplies. As as you know, those huge bursts in money supplies from March through June, April, they have, uh, they're still increasing, but at a much slower rate. Obviously, if there was another PPP or another stimulus package and more than that, that would push that money supply up and that would in- increase the economy and also help the stock market. On the stock market front, as we talked about last Friday, I mean, a welcome blow off. I mean, the tech had obviously became, you know, way overextended. Um, and, uh, um, you know, uh, it, 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 it pulled back. We're going to, we're going to see, I mean, it's forming a base. 
Um, I was on CNBC earlier this week, um, actually on Tuesday right after Labor Day, saying that um, uh, uh, it'll take a few days for it to base, and, and, and there'll probably be a challenge of the highs. I don't think NASDAQ, and particularly the highest flyers like the Teslas, will make new highs. I think that that was a blow-off there. Um, I think the stronger stocks and will do better, and uh, this is a chance of a rotation for the next six months into the value. Of course, uh, we've 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 said that that might happen before, so certainly no one you shouldn't base your life uh, on on uh, on that. Uh, we got a little. We got news on the PPI and CPI, a little hotter than expected on prices. Remember, my outlook is that we will. Ex- Experience inflation once the economy uh, does uh, heat up, particularly uh, in 2021. Um, 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 let me mention on the international front, going, going back to the virus, it, you know, it's a wonderful laboratory. Uh, we have uh, Israel, who did a great job of suppressing cases early on. And then decided, okay, we won the victory, and they became lax, and now it's had an explosion of cases. And in fact, the Knesset has just uh, now ordered a lockdown. This is the first uh, um, major country, developed country, to re-lockdown. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen in the U.S. or anyone else, um, but probably because. Again, they suppress it so much that once you you do it, they're getting another wave. Now, again, they're getting a wave with better therapeutics and all the rest. The death rate is still really low in Israel, um, but it, it is uh, it is it, it it goes by what Andres Tegnell, the epidemiologist of Sweden, had said was it's going to go through. Um, uh, and by the way, Sweden is still looking really good. It still has cases, but down. It is not experiencing a surge of cases. France is really a surge. Spain is a surge. England is a surge. Um, there's now a surge in cases in EU. I think EU now even as a group now surpasses U.S. in terms of total number of cases. Of course, India will surpass the U.S., I think, in a matter of a week or two. Um, so the, it's the idea is uh, you... you you know, uh, remember, Sweden has very few restrictions, um, now virtually no deaths, hit the vulnerable. Again, the gain through waiting was getting uh, therapeutics and techniques. They unfortunately suffered at the beginning. But the idea that once 20% of the population, 25%, that may be effective herd uh, immunity, we don't know yet. Uh, one should mention, of course, the worst thing about the uh, the AstraZeneca, you know, the pausing of the trial, of course, it makes more di- distrust in the vaccine. This is not an unusual event. It's not even clear it was caused by the virus. Could be caused by an, an, uh, the, the the vaccine could be caused by an adjuvant that was added that can be easily adjusted. Um, you're always going to get some reactions when tens of thousands of people are giving are given viruses. Um, so, uh, but it just adds to the fuel of those that don't want to take it, and then you know that skepticism of the entire virus situation uh, goes on. So we got a lot of things going on, um, you know. And uh, politically, I guess people are looking for the first debate at the end of September to see whether that that really moves uh, any of the polls dramatically. Uh, by the way, it's it's back. Biden is around. Slightly less than than three to two, you know, fifty nine forty four, sixty one forty three, depending on how you look at it. The Senate is fifty seven forty six for the Dems. If the again, if the Senate vote was held today, it would be exactly fifty fifty on the polls, and then the presidency will defi- de- decide which direction uh, they go. So the, you know, they're really what the, the bounce that Trump got has largely disappeared. Um, but the polls are still really cl- pretty close in in those uh, swing states. Uh, we're going to have a time for maybe one quick question uh, before we get to our, our, our main interview. Uh, we 
you know, we have a new feature. You can ask Professor Siegel questions. You can email uh, asksiegel, S-I-E-G-E-L, at wisdomtree.com to get your questions in, Professor. And somebody commented on your uh, comments last week about productivity increasing 10% to the 50-year highs. Uh, and they wondered, you know, how spectacular is that versus just downsizing from COVID? You know, is it something that uh, the rise of digital tech going to finally show up more longer term, you think, in the productivity well, data? Well, I think, I think that is some of it. Now, I, I, I have read some articles that, uh, and uh, there, there may be a little bit of truth that part of that push, I mean, 10% is, you know, we're talking about five times average. That's not a sustainable level. Um, we got rid of lower productivity workers, so the higher productivity workers, that is part of the effect that we had. Um, uh, we had halted in production, so actually manufacturing productivity went down, but we held workers and didn't produce. But I, I think that, um, I do think this is going to give a permanent jump to productivity, and uh, that jumps real wages um, of those working. Uh, and those people who, of course, who, who that are in the low productivity jobs that won't be hired back, that's the retooling that is needed to be done for the, the new economy. Uh, I, I do think that, um, you know, again, I didn't think that got as much publicity as it should and what this means for longer-term trends. We should also mention we got a productivity in, in the financial crisis in that big wave down. Again, we had a one-quarter productivity surge, nowhere near as great as what we had today. We're really looking to what's going to happen later on, but um, as I say, firms are trimming costs, uh, looking at their dollars. That's why I actually think that uh, S&P earnings are actually going to exceed uh, expectations in 2021. Well, Professor, a great way to start the show. We're going to be talking with UBS China economist Tao Wang. Uh, the remaining of the show, we had a nice conversation with her a little bit earlier. You can hear that conversation. China is one of the most important issues, uh, both for the current political election, but also their economy that's sort of emerging from the crisis. Pandemic first in, sort of first out. You'll hear uh, Tao's view on what's happening in China uh, on this upcoming interview. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. I'd like to welcome our guest, Tao Wang, who's an economist at UBS in Hong Kong, chief economist for China there. Uh, we have Lee Chen Ren from Wisdom Tree. Uh, Tao, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks for joining us to talk about China today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Tell us a little bit about yourself uh, and, and your background, how did you get to UBS and, and some of your training and, and previous uh, previous roles? Sure. Um, I have been at UBS for more than 12 years as the chief China economist. Uh, before that, I was at Bank of America, at BP. Uh, before that, I spent many years in Washington, D.C. at the International Monetary Fund, also uh, spent some time covering China. Uh, I got my uh, uh, graduate degree, my PhD from New York University, uh, but I um, grew up and uh, went to university in China. And when you think about the, the team you have at UBS, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about how big your team is, what you guys are focused on, and, and how you differentiate from some of the other China research groups. Sure. Um, UBS has a pretty large uh, and early presence in China. Uh, so we also have a, uh, the whole onshore license and, and so on. So we have a pretty big team. Um, for the China economics team, we have uh, about five people. Uh, but outside of that, uh, we also have a UBS evidence lab team. And so that is global. Uh, and that's a data team. We have a lot of data scientists. They're located uh, all over the world. So uh, covering China or covering, you know, other areas and other sectors, a uh, very important thing, of course, is data. For China itself, uh, some of the data are not easily available as much as, say, in the U.S. So we're trying to find as much information as possible, and we have our own alternative sources. For example, the UBS Evidence Lab does surveys uh, or uh, basically source out surveys, um, and we also collect other big data, use satellite information, um, do web scraping, and so on. Yeah, so that a, helps us, I think, ma maintain our edge. Getting good China data is one of the big questions. People always wonder, like, what is China growing at? Can you trust 
the government statistics? I mean, how, how when you you know, and, and sort of what is their their growth rates? How does your your generally your your if you sort of step back beyond this? Obviously, this year is going to be a very interesting year to talk about. But how good do you say the China GDP data is? Is there is there some you know perception versus reality issues? How how close does your your data track the the government statistics there? Yeah, I think the problems with Chinese data are quite well known. So, um, of course, compared to, say, data in the U.S. or um, OECD countries, I think uh, Chinese data are, are not that good. Um, but I think compared to emerging markets, most emerging markets, China's data are actually quite plenty and, and very good. Um, GDP is an estimate, and estimate always have issues. And in China, there are some uh, there are some methodological issues, and there are also sometimes um, probably manipulation at local level um, by local government. So the way to get around it for us is is we try to get as much corroborative evidence as possible. So we look at everything. We don't just look at GDP. We look at industrial production. We look at property uh, activities. Um, some of these data are harder to manipulate. For example, you know, property sales. We look at exports and imports number, which can can be corroborated by um, partner countries as well. So that's also harder um, to to uh, falsify on. Or if there are anomalies, we can understand what is what are the anomalies. And uh, yeah, so we also look at the sectoral level information. For example, if you know people say construction is very strong, then we look at uh, steel production, iron ore imports, right? So if if uh, if those are are pretty strong, then they can be corroborated. So I think the trick is to look at as much information, a whole comprehensive set, to try to um, compensate for that issue. Um, this is Li Chen. Hi, I I can't believe you know we just see last year and now we probably won't see each other for another year. Um, I noticed that you have been using a lot of real time big data for economic research, and you also mentioned you know your uh, evidence lab tried to uh, scrape some of those real time data um, yourself. Can you you know illustrate a little bit like in terms of outsiders or uh, what what kind of sources are those data? Sure. Um, so the real time data, for example, I think this year when COVID nineteen hit, um, it was a big shock and and data. It's very difficult to get the data, and we want to understand what's going on on the ground. So. There are some daily information in China so that we use, for example, the coal uh, consumption of a few big uh, power plants that's used as a proxy of what industrial activity is doing on a daily basis, uh, and also uh, property sales, for example. Uh, and then uh, the, uh, the other thing is these uh, daily traffic congestion index. Um, that uh, we also have like Baidu, uh, people movement or migration index as well. So those are our daily things we can use. So we basically use those information and, and develop the daily tracker. And then we, we also use that globally. Uh, globally, we use this um, information provided by uh, TomTom users. So then we, we, we can compare um, c traffic congestion or tra traffic movements across major cities or 300 cities globally and so we can see you know how how uh, covid-19 is, is affecting uh, people's um, normal activities so what is your current read of china like how, when you think about the you know, they were first into the the covid crisis shutdown first sort of out like how's your your sense of the economy's pulse right now Right. Um, so the the economy. So looking at those, we we've been tracking those uh, daily activity index uh, since uh, uh, February, and we were able to compare to uh, global situation since mid March. Um, so we can see that China indeed had uh, uh, first entered into that uh, severe. Um, recession, if you will, of of that short period, and then uh, climbing out, uh, and we saw a very quick. Uh, improvement of activities after April. So in the beginning, in March, the activity, especially of people movements, was still very slow. But industrial activities were moving back, uh, were recovering more quickly. We also, so one thing I, I didn't mention is port activities. We also noted that port activities were already recovering since March. 
Um, so we knew that uh, that trade and export were uh, recovering more quickly. So at this moment, uh, I would say that activities have uh, most of the activities have um, gone back to normal or beyond normal. But the areas where the activities that still require a lot of people gathering uh, that uh, they're still lagging behind. Um, that is because you know some things are not open or they or they require not uh, fully open. For example, cinemas uh, and big events uh, and uh, domestic travel, even though it has come back, you know, by and large, but not yet fully back to normal. Um, so you know, so recovery, I think, is at a later stage, um, and we saw growth already above. Um, zero in the second quarter. Now we are looking at year-on-year growth of 5 to 6%, um, GDP growth of 5 to 6% in the third and fourth quarter. When you think about like the government's response, you know, in the U.S. we have this massive, you know, relief efforts and, and uh, you know, we sort of shut down, you know, broader cross sections of our economy, I, I think, at least for a longer time in the U.S. Well, anything about what the China government has been doing and how they sort of supported the economy and and uh, and different different elements of it? Um, I guess the difference is perhaps that China um, did very drastic actions in the beginning, the, the lockdown of uh, Wuhan, which was pretty bad for people in Wuhan, but I guess it it was necessary and it was um, important for uh, curtailing the spread of the virus uh, nationally. And in February, there was also very strict mobility restrictions uh, nationwide. Um, and then after that, I think that what the government did was uh, channeling a lot of efforts trying to get people back to work. And that was especially challenging because millions of people had gone home during the Chinese New Year. Um, and uh, because public transport is restricted, you have to find a way for people to get to get back. So that took some time, and that's the focus. Um, and then the government's effort was um, extending that. That's similar to U.S. and other places, extending you know funding for small uh, and large enterprises and um, uh, putting you know giving more fiscal stimulus. Uh, but the focus was more on I think controlling the virus rather than giving subsidies. There's very little subsidy to normal people compared to the U.S., um, which is kind of, you know, ironic, I suppose. Um, And one would have expected a country like China give more outright uh, subsidies, uh, but that was not the approach. I think they try to rely more on how the economy can get back to normal by itself. Um, understanding or maybe fearing that otherwise um, there will be a huge amount of subsidy and people will still not feel comfortable of getting back to normal. Um, recently, I think there are some um, talk about, you know, a little bit more government uh, support for the business. Um, do you see this um, like kind of little bit change uh, from, you know, from the virus to the economy? And do, do you believe this might uh, add to the accumulation of the debt? Yeah, so um, one of the, the key ways that the government uh, were supporting business is through the banking system, through the financial system. Um, so instead of through, uh, so there, there's, of course, uh, the tax waivers and, and tax cuts. Um, but the, the main thing that the government has been relying on is to ask banks to um extend the loans and not asking for payments or even uh, waiver the interest payments um, for a year uh, and then continue to lend to companies that are running in trouble having cash flow issues. Uh, so that's, of course, very good to support the economy, but it, it does mean that at some point somebody has to pay um, and that you know banks probably will have more NPLs, uh, non-performing loans. Uh, and uh, also they are lending into a economy that is really uh, that was going through serious uh, slowdowns and into basically companies that are in pretty uh, bad shape, at least cash flow wise. Um, I think, yeah, so that's definitely a concern. So we do see debt uh, rise, uh, rising quite sharply this year. Debt is share of GDP, we think will rise by 25 percentage points this year. But that uh, next year, as the economy recovers, uh, we think that 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 uh, ratio will um, stabilize a bit. Uh, but definitely, I think the the the, the after 
the consequence of you know higher debt and lending into um, not doing the companies not doing very well will uh, end up having you know more uh, bad debt and there is definitely a concern about the financial sector right now that's that's the important reason why the authorities are a bit hesitant on additional easing and they have already started to um, you know they have stopped easing further on the monetary side. Yeah, that's a lot of interesting points in that, Tao. I mean, the the one is the the asking the banks just to keep extending the loans to the businesses. Is there a difference between the banks that are more what you would say sort of state owned or, or sort of heavily owned by the government versus, you know, maybe there's not that many big banks that are less state owned? Is there is there a difference there in your view um, or is it just generally all the banks are getting the same type of treatment and and you do do see like a, a large dis- discrepancy in performances here between things like the banks and and other consumer parts of China so I, i'm i'm just curious on your on view of that general sense what what's happening in the state banks versus maybe other banks yeah well uh, in china the banks are predominantly owned by the state yeah. so at least they're controlled by the state so banks do um tend to listen to the the government and the regulators and regulators ask them to give you know regulatory forbearance and continue to lend and so they they have to do that um and uh, and people understand that that the banks often do national service um you know sometimes function as a utility company and so that's why you know chinese banks uh uh, don't trade well. Uh, most yeah. of them uh, trade below book value, right? So they understand that they they have that. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, the recovery has been uh, pretty strong. And I, when I look at in China, I see a huge distinction between state-owned companies during this recovery versus uh, like non-state-owned companies. Uh, do you see the growth, the economic growth, still coming from the you know ex-state-owned companies? Uh, more or like where, where, where are the economic growth is likely to come in the next couple of years? Right. Um, well, so I, I think that I, I tend to look at more by sector. Um, so I think uh, so at the, at the moment, the recovery is being led by uh, you know, strong property construction, exports has been, you know, quite resilient in recent months, exports growth has been strong, and then infrastructure investment. Um, so it's actually a combination of state and non-state. Um, but of course, the private sector tend to be in the more vibrant areas um, of exports, of consumer products, uh, of property, and so on. Um, but also, it could mean they're more cyclical, right? So in... Um, uh, in, in times of hardship, they are hit quite hard as well. Uh, and then uh, in times of recovery, they can uh, bounce back uh, quite strongly. So in the uh, in in this vibrant sectors, um, you can see that Internet, um, e-commerce and so on, these are uh, largely populated by uh, big private companies and they are doing very well, um, you know, better than uh, than state companies. But there are also in, in the service sector, though, I would caution there are also, um, you know, thousands of small um, private companies that, you know, have a shop or, you know, have a retail shop or restaurant and they are stru- many of them are struggling. So it's it's um, uh, it, it's more about, you know, what areas rather than um, what what sector. Um, so private or, or non-private. Uh, but in general, though, uh, I think that um, private in sector in China, of course, is, is more efficient and more productive uh, and, uh, you know, usually have higher profitability. Um, but they also, you know, if we consider small private companies, um, uh, more of them fail as well compared to the state because the state companies often um, somebody will step in to save them. Uh, we're just talking about uh, what sectors of the China economy are, are sort of doing well. And, and how you were mentioning, you know, sort of things like uh, the Internet have been some of the big growth areas or the private run businesses. When you think about the, the consumption trends that have happened in this, you know, COVID, post-COVID pandemic world, what are the things that you think have changed uh, in terms of the patterns of consumption that you think are here to stay? Like any any sort of fundamental shifts of what happened uh, from what when they op- from when they closed to when they're when they're opening now? 
Right. I think, uh, yeah, so we have done a few surveys, consumer surveys uh, among Chinese consumers in, in February, April and May and so on. What we noticed that is uh, even after mobility restrictions were relaxed, uh, people were still more reluctant uh, to go on, you know, offline entertainment, uh, for example, eat, dining out or um, uh, go to cinemas and, and things like that. And so there's certainly a trend, uh, accelerated trend of uh, digitalization. Uh, people do many more things online. So that that's very uh, clear. Uh, and, and even, you know, older uh, people and uh, men <laughs> who usually don't uh, consume as much online as, as the other uh, parts of society are, are doing more of that. So that's uh, one trend. Um, other than that, I think also in terms of products, and there's a, a trend that people are spending more on um, daily goods uh, because they you know, tend to cook at home and, and so on more, and also on the well-being kind of products, for example, um, healthcare, gyms and sports equipment, uh, education, um, sort of self-improvement, uh, less on things like clothing and cosmetics and jewelry and so on. So uh, that's also, I think, understandable. Uh, we probably will see that a bit uh, in other countries as well. And the third area is um, restrictions on travel, especially international travel, is still very much there. Um, so people are, uh, in China, of course, it's now open, so people are doing domestic travel, but probably they are choosing, you know, traveling by cars or, or vans and uh, rather than, you know, public transport a bit more. And also then in terms of buying luxury goods and high-end products, uh, there's, the desire is still there, but more are uh, purchased at home because they cannot uh, go out. So you have this very strange phenomenon where, you know, in a country where it's supposed to be hit by COVID-19, then you have long lines outside of these uh, luxury uh, brand uh, name stores like Gucci's and LV's in China because people could not go out, um, you know, uh, travel overseas. So they're spending at home. Very interesting. And I saw, you know, car sales is one of those trends that's been pretty strong in, in many places. I think China car sales, uh, am, I, am I hearing right that their data for recent, maybe the recent month is even higher than it was a year ago, that sort of car sales because of that less desire for public transportation, you know, there's high car sales is, is booming? Yes. Yeah. So car sales uh, did uh, rebound quite a bit. Indeed, I think in our survey, people also said that COVID-19 made, you know, increase their desire to buy a car. Um, in, in, in very crowded cities, I think people, you know, uh, hesitant to travel in, in, in public transport, then uh, they would like to, to have a car. Um, also, I think some people probably would like to upgrade their, you know, home um so that, you know, if they are staying at home a lot, they probably wanted to have a bigger place and also upgrade their um, computer, you know, electronic goods so they can work and study better at home. Um, actually, um, talking about um, car sales, do, in the U.S., there's definitely some trend of people moving away from the cities. But China is different in the sense that uh, the infrastructure you know, the schools are just so much better in the cities. Do you see some trend of, you know, people moving away from the cities or it's still, uh, you know, the city is still the, the main economic center? I think in China, cities are still the main economic center. There's always uh, anecdotes, of course, of um, some, you know, young people uh, moving away from the biggest places to have a, you know, better uh, life work balance and, and quality of life. But I think, uh, you know, at the, at the macro level, uh, urbanization is still very much the, the trend. Of course, going forward is about how to build better infrastructure and better schools in maybe, you know, third tier, fourth tier cities. So not everyone has to go in, into the mega cities. And um, so I think, yeah, city, cities will still be the, the center of um, activity and of, of living. Real estate is one of the sectors, you know, that when you think about how, you know, a lot of the, the Chinese save and invest their their income and wealth, um, you know, I, I'd, I'd heard you know that china sort of disproportionate amount of home ownership uh in terms of sort of housing welfare 
but you know that also th that the government was trying to cool off the real estate sector to an extent when you know I, I saw a chart of the total social financing that really didn't go anywhere from 2013 to the sort of start of 2020 sort of bounced around to flat and then now it's obviously skyrocketed with as you mentioned you know debt going you know 25 percent higher um you know is 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 any sense in just the general state of the real estate market? Is that true that they were sort of trying to cool off the 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 how strong some of the real estate markets is, and and do you see that uh, picking back? Uh, yeah, so property indeed, um, you know, has been in a long boom uh, in China for for a long, long time. Um, property ownership, home ownership, is very high in urban areas, with more than eighty percent. Uh, in rural areas, even higher. Uh, but because there's a lack of investment vehicles, you know, assets, real assets uh, or financial assets for investment and capital is controlled, you cannot easily take uh, money, take investment outside of China. So property has been really uh, the preferred assets, the preferred way of storing wealth and for, for uh, investment for a Chinese household. Um, and of course, at times, for example, after 2009, um, the global financial crisis, and also in 2015-16, when the authorities eased property policies and, and credit policies, then household also borrowed uh, quite a bit to, to buy property. So um, property prices are quite high in most cities, and the uh, government uh, is worried about property bubble. Um, so that said, they also understand that property is a very important part of the economy. So it's very hard. There's, it's, it's always a dilemma for them uh, in terms of between, you know, cooling and, and preventing a bubble, and but also wanting to have property as a pillar supporting growth, um, especially local government. Uh, although the central government may worry about bubble, local governments always like to have higher property prices and uh, more vibrant uh, property activity because then they make more money and their city seems um, doing better. Um, most recently, um, I, I think given that property has uh, rebounded quite strongly and prices started to rise again, even in this environment when, you know, a lot of people probably have lost jobs and so on. So the authorities uh, started to kind of give a bit of a warning shot and they convened with some of the large developers and tell them to lower their gearing and, uh, you know, not push up land prices uh, too much. Um, so there is a bit of an inclination there, but I, I suspect policies will still be are quite um, limited uh, because the authorities, of course, they want growth to stabilize. Um, you mentioned that, you know, China's uh, exports were very strong. Uh, at the meantime, in the U.S., there's also um, very, you know, um, almost daily, uh, you know, political news uh, talking about the coupling between U.S. and China. Are the supply chains uh, shifting away from China? Uh, and how does that impact on China's production and investment? Um, in particular, um, uh, wh what's, you know, what's the relationship between China and India since, you know, India is considered, a, a, you know, kind of a, a candidate for potential supply chain shift from China? Sure. Um, there, you have a few questions there. So on the export strength and supply chain shift, um, so certainly I think uh, since the U.S.-China trade war started, um, the supply chain, the desire for companies to, to shift the supply chain has increased. And that supply chain shift, of course, have been happening already in, in uh, years before as uh, costs in China rises and China also uh, start to uh, have a very strong domestic market that attracts other uh, investment, whereas you know the the lower end manufacturing start to to move out. But uh, this trend certainly has uh, intensified in the last couple of years. Um, at the moment, though, I think given that COVID nineteen, of course, has hurt business and uh, hurt operations uh, across the board, um, I think they're probably not going to be a rush. For exit at this moment, I think companies probably want to just to survive and, and see what's going on. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, rather than you know making new investments somewhere else. But what they will do is probably delaying and cut their current investment plans. So this is why we think China's 
manufacturing investment, corporate capex, is going to be uh, weakened uh, by this as well. Our forecast uh, is you know, minus 5% of manufacturing investment this year. Um, in terms of uh, you know the the current strength uh, in China, the exports. So you know, in spite of that desire to probably uh, move some supply chain uh, away, um, the fact is that China's supply chain is quite resilient. It's very uh, com- comprehensive. It has everything. Um, so in during the COVID nineteen. Uh, when China had gotten out of the mobility restriction and disruption first, it was able to supply the world with, um, you know, face masks and medical, medical supplies and also all the electronic goods that people suddenly, you know, um, need more of. So those two things are the biggest uh, contribution to China's export strength uh, recently. Um, between China and India, so uh, as as China, as some of these um, manufacturers move away from China, where do they go? India seems to be a natural, you know, next destination. Um, so, the, you know, people do ex- express uh, interest in moving to India, uh, but more at this moment to Southeast Asia, for example, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Thailand. I think the issue with India is perhaps that its manufacturing is not um, that well developed, and there are a, quite a quite some domestic issues, including infrastructure, regulations, and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, in theory, India really is an, uh, a country that, that can absorb a lot of these uh, supply sh- chain shifts away from China. In reality, it's been uh, quite challenging, I think, for companies. We're talking with Chief uh, China economist for UBS Taiwan, uh, and, and, you know, Li Chen, you just mentioned some of the tensions uh, in trade geopolitics china seems to be having you know some some tensions with with india as well uh, and it seems like india is taking some measures to block things like their 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 apps uh, and some tensions there uh, tao when you think about all the geopolitical uh, risks out there I, as you think about risks to the china economy and investments in China, like what are the what would what would be the ones that you're most concerned about? You know, as sort of derailing the the economy or just investments in China. Right, I think the biggest risk to China, especially in terms of uh, international risks, uh, is U.S.-China relations. Um, U.S. of course is is still the largest market for China and. Uh, uh, a lot of technology um, comes eventually from the U.S. as well uh, with the uh, restrictions and the entity list um, that U.S. Uh, has imposed on you know, China's access to technology and, and so on and so forth. Um, that could be potentially disruptive. Um, I understand there are also considerations of financial restrictions, investment restrictions, and of course, uh, there's also uh, higher tariffs the U.S. has imposed on Chinese goods already. Um, So I I think this is an area that potentially, especially on the tech side, that could be, um, you know, bringing more damage to China's economy. Yeah, the uh, the trade one, the phase one of the trade deal uh, is sort of an open question. You know, a lot of people think it's it's going to be hard for China to sort of they they're, they're having a hard time even keeping up with 2019 levels, yet alone sort of these 2017 levels that they committed to. Do you do you see that breaking down? Do you see them trying to find ways to stay in the trade one phase one trade deal? Uh, yeah, I, I think the phase one trade deal will be um, will be maintained. Um, I think it's in everybody's interest to keep that going. I think U.S.-China relations have deteriorated in everything, in, in all other aspects. And um, ironically, trade is an area there's still some kind of understanding, uh, some kind of dialogue. Uh, so. Yeah, it would be very difficult for China to meet the original purchase um, agreement, given where the economy is. And also, um, you know, commodity prices have come down very sharply, um, including agriculture prices. But uh, China is buying more U.S. stuff. Um, 
than before, uh, certainly in, in 2019, uh, and uh, are still trying very hard to, to, to meet that. So I suppose that's good for uh, President Trump and for, for the U.S., that, that even in the current situation, China is buying more. Uh, in other areas, um, I think this is probably less, uh, the attention is paid, less attention is paid to by the media and so on. There are a lot of the structural side that China is doing, including uh, opening domestic markets, um, and that is p- continue to be pushed forward, uh, and uh, to try to improve IP protection. That was the original reason for you know Section 301 to to have started for tariffs to have started. People seem to have forgotten about those. Um, so China is still trying to meet those and keep the exchange rate stable. That's also an important part of the Phase One trade deal. Um, so as long as China is doing that. I think there is no for me that I don't see really incentive for U.S. to um, to to move away from this. And for China, of course, China always you know wanted never wanted to have a trade war, so always wanted to uh, continue to uh, keep keep the trade deal going forward. So yeah, so we we expect it to continue. What what tell us a little bit about your situation in in Hong Kong uh, before the pandemic? There was a bunch of protests. How do you see what, you know, just your local economy is, how is that recovering compared to just what's what's happening in, in sort of mainland China? Well, so Hong Kong economy has been hit very hard. It's been hit hard uh, before the pandemic by the protest, uh, which basically uh, meant that uh, tourist arrivals from mainland, which has been, um, you know, very big source of uh, retail sales and and a big part of the economy, um, had come down very sharply, you know, down 56%. And now after the pandemic, the borders are practically sealed. Um, and so really nobody arrives. Um, so that that's pretty bad for retail sales and so on. Hong Kong itself never really had a lockdown. So we are able to go out to restaurants most of the time and, and so on. Of course, there's social distancing and people wearing masks. But I think the uh, overall activity has definitely been hit quite hard. The, the economy went down 10%. Um, and the, the authorities have put in stimulus but I think given that Hong Kong is a very open economy, it's uh, you know open to trade uh, and and all these uh, tourist uh, um, activities, I think it will take quite some time for it to recover. Um, the good thing is that the financial activities, financial sector is still doing well, I, th- I suppose, thanks in part to um, the Fed's quantitative easing, uh, in part also to uh, very um, vibrant activities uh, on Chinese uh, companies, Chinese-related uh, IPOs and so on in Hong Kong. Yeah, is that, you know, you see you see the tension in the U.S. where, you know, they're trying to come to some accounting agreements uh, and the U.S. are trying to say, you know, that the Chinese companies like an Alibaba who have shares listed both in Hong Kong and the U.S., but if they don't comply with some of these accounting rules that they may have to delist from the U.S. and, and go to Hong Kong, is that is that something you see increased discussion on? Uh, you hear, do you hear about that a lot? Yeah, we definitely hear that a lot from uh, investors who are um, who are you know watching this space very very closely. Um, I, I think, of course, you know, regulators would would want to um, you know to, to increase you know uh, supervision and so on. That that's not um, uh, not not something we can comment on. Uh, but I think investors are, are concerned. There is some political motivation potentially. Um, so for Hong Kong, though, I think regardless, so when companies um, may think they face uh, pressure in the U.S., they probably will seek alternative uh, platforms. And so many of them then come to Hong Kong. So Hong Kong turned out to be a beneficiary of uh, on this front of, of the you know, tensions between um, U.S. And, and China. And any longer-term concerns about where the protests were going, what it means for for Hong Kong's economy in terms of all the sort of disruption that was was happening there, and and sort of where those relations with with uh, with China are. 
So um, Hong Kong, you know, of course, is a part of China. And so that, um, you know, one country, two system has been tested in the last 20 plus years and, you know, are facing additional tests at the moment. Um, recently, uh, the nat- because of the protest and, the, you know, the inaction of the national, uh, so then there's an inaction of the national security law. Uh, and then U.S. also changed its policy on, on Hong Kong by um, uh, taking away some of the special treatment on Hong Kong. So Hong Kong faces additional challenges going forward. So I think, you know, in the long term, uh, I, I think it would take some time for people uh, to see what are all these changes, you know, how, how, how these, all these changes are going to impact on uh, the economy and the functioning of, uh, of, um, of the financial system and so on in the, in the future. But I also see a positive side in, in that I, I think Hong Kong's uh, unique position um, in, in that it, it has uh, no capital control. It's, it's a financial center with free movements of uh, money, of information, and it has the common law legal system that's independent uh, of the, you know, China's legal system. And it, of course, have all the expertise um, you know, accumulated through the decades in Hong Kong. These things cannot change so easily um, and cannot be replicated by other uh, regional financial centers so easily, whether it's uh, Shenzhen, Shanghai, Tokyo, or Singapore. Um, so I think Hong Kong will remain um, and has has the uh, really the um, uh, the good fundamentals to remain as a you know in, in international financial center. So um, on that side, I'm I'm still quite positive. Um, so if if you come, if I come back just to try to summarize some of our early conversation and and close, you know, in, in some ways, um, when you think about the sort of the the broader outlook for China for Asia, uh, when when you thinking thinking ahead to 2021, like how do you how do you Think about the the economic environment we we get as we try to exit the pandemic going into 2021. Yeah, so going into 2021, I I think um, our our broad outlook is that we should see a pretty strong uh, recovery in most parts of Asia and uh, in China as well. Our expectation is China's growth will be above seven and a half percent next year. Um, the base effect, of course, matters. Um, and so as people, as, as activities normalize, as people go back to normal, those, those you know, demand recovery will, will continue. Um, and uh, policies probably will gradually exit and, and cease to be uh, so uh, loose. Uh, at the same time, I think the concerns for us, you know, of U.S.-China relations will, will remain. Uh, of course, another risk is um, you know, when will pandemic be controlled um, globally? Um, without it being controlled globally, I don't, I don't think any country can be immune. So it's, we're all in this in this together. Um, even if you close the border, economic ties are still there. Um, so I think you know our outlook for next year is um, relatively bright. We, we are looking at for a strong recovery. However, the, I think the risk of you know, the geopolitical tensions and, and the pandemic is still two things we watch closely. Well, Tal, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for, for joining us, Lee Chan. Thanks for helping coordinate. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 132. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM Channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.